Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Views and Views on View, not in View, on View. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the Face for Radio and the Voice for Being a Mind, but I am still your host. And today, with me on our panel, we have Lindsay Wardell. Hello, Lindsay. Hello from Portland. Also from Portland. I actually see sun shining through today through the clouds, so a little better than the past few days for sure. And our guest is the illustrious, esteemed former Views on View panelist. Video maker extraordinaire Eric Hanchet. How you doing, Eric? Hey, Steve. Hey, Lindsay. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. Hey, folks. If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv/premium. So we're going to talk through a few topics with Eric. We had him on earlier this year prior to the publication and release of his View 360 program. And just for those of you who might not be aware, Eric also published a book called Views 2 in Action a couple of years ago, I believe is when it was. And so we're going to talk about those things. And then he also recently did a three-hour View workshop. So you could say he has a good view on View. So let's talk about your Youth 360 program first. So since uh, we haven't talked to you since that was released, how did that go? Ups and downs, any things you learned from running a class like that and so on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, for those who didn't listen to the first interview, I've been doing View for many years and I enjoy teaching it on my YouTube channel. And I decided that I wanted to try to get into teaching a class because I've seen so much great content online for view. There's amazing tutorials The you know, everybody on this call knows that the official documentation is great, but I wanted to try to kind of do something a little above and beyond the official documentation. So I came up with a six, actually it started with five weeks and then went to six weeks, but basically a five week program where I take a group of students, many of which who just started learning view or some who have some experience with view but no not a ton and then bring them all the way to kind of like an advanced expert level and in fact actually there was a handful of people in the class that that had already worked in view for for a while and had production apps in view and they were working with their team so i had a, a good mix of of people between like beginners and then people that had were working on production apps in view and so I, I'd started this program. I, I made it a little bit more expensive because of the time it takes to to run a program like that. And I ran it twice. I think when I talked to you guys the first time, I was, I was just about to run it the first class, and we it, it went really really well. It was it was really cool to like get and talk to to people that were running these view apps in production. It was really good to talk to just beginners too, to find out like what they were struggling with and what they needed help on. So every week we would have a live call about hour to hour and a half long and we would go over our assignments. So every week you basically had like a homework assignment and you don't, you didn't have to do it, of course, but it would have benefited everyone if you did. And then you would present your project basically to us, to a group that we had in this call. And we would go over, like I would show you the, the, what I came up with and you know, the, everyone in the class would show what they came up with. And so we got this, by the end of the class, we had dozens of apps, like dozens of example apps, dozens of people's apps that you could really just look through and learn a ton and see how other people were, were using Vue and Vuex and 
it ramped up quickly. So, I mean, the first takeaway from the first class I realized was that there's just not, there's too much information to pack in in five weeks for especially a lot of students. So on the second time I ran it, I, I extended out one more week. And so I think that really helped because just that one extra week we had, we were able to get into more view three stuff. We were able to kind of not crush everything into to, to one week at a time in some of the topics. So that, that really helped. And I also found just by running the program that there, there is a pretty big divide between beginners and people that have, as you guys probably obviously know, people who have, who've done Vue for a while and who are working with Vue in production. So I, I found out that sometimes during the, the last few weeks of the course, the advanced people would be all into it, but they wouldn't be very into the first few weeks. And then the beginners, you know, everybody's on their own time schedule. So a lot of those guys would have would be struggling in the later weeks. So something I'm really thinking about as I run this course again is how to split between the beginners and the people that are more advanced and maybe even make little like pods for each of these people and have more accountability and how I'm going to split the class up. So, I mean, that's a long answer, but generally, you know, it went, it went pretty well. So have you thought about, you know, and obviously this would be a big undertaking, maybe splitting out and having like beginners in an advanced course, yeah. maybe a little shorter and more compact or something like that, more tailored for the particular audience? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing for next time. Damn, so, I'm good. Okay. Yep. So I'm I'm looking to to figure out maybe having the first three weeks be like a sole beginners class, and then the last three weeks be a sole advanced class, and then someone can buy kind of both sections if they want to do like the complete six weeks or do four and four. So I'm yeah I'm kind of playing around with different ideas, and also the one thing I find that really helps when people are learning, and you see this a lot in classrooms, like in physical teaching, is is group projects like how can we take like 30 students or 40 students and by the way this is about what i'm doing i don't i don't like i don't have hundreds of hundred students I, I like a small amount of students so i can really help as many people as i can but how can i take like 30 40 students and break them up into teams of like four or five each where they can learn themselves in their little i call them pods or or their, their little their little networking groups together so that way they can have accountability partners and that they way they can push each other. So that's another idea that I, I want to pursue because what happens is in a lot of these, these programs is you have a lot of people that are really enthusiastic, but it's really hard for some people to continue on. And I think if, if we had a little bit more accountability partners, that's like another change I wanted, wanted to do. Also, I, I switched from, I found too that like I, I used to do YouTube Lives on a private YouTube live that just wasn't enough interaction with people. And, and, and sadly, you know, this kind of what it gave me the thought of to switch it all to Slack, like having, or not Slack, but zoom, having zoom calls was way more engaging. People like turn, some people turned on the camera, some people didn't, that was fine. But like just talking to people and engaging and, and seeing people's reactions and having that real time back and forth was really awesome during the class. And that's another change I would did as I, I keep continually trying to make this course better. Yeah, making it a two-way course, certainly, I could totally see that increasing engagement. In my case, you would want my camera off so you don't have to see my face, but I think for most people, that works That works pretty well. <laughs> so you said you you kept it to like, what, 35, 40? Is that where you topped out your, your registration? Yep. Yeah, I didn't really want more than that. Yeah. I mean, if, if I did get like hundreds or something, then, you know, I, 
possibly, I would call you up, Steve. We can work on it together. But I was seriously going to talk to you about that anyway, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. So you were talking about projects. So did you have a list of like predefined projects and gave them the option of taking one or were they responsible coming up with something maybe that interests them on their own or, or how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. What? So I planned it out for six weeks and each week we had one project, but in the later weeks, I kind of gave the students like two or three different options. So like, for example, one week we created like a shopping cart app and another week we created some marketing site. And so we, I, I did plan that out every single week. And then there were just like, we had about, you know, you have like a couple of hours of videos each week, maybe sometimes less, sometimes more. And then it would kind of focus in on this project for you to do. And then every week, everyone would do the project and then they can bring it into like this group class. You don't have to present, but you, this group class every, every week and we would have this video call and we would talk about it. And then we're like, everybody have their code like in a GitHub repo or something that everybody else could go look at. And yes, of- yes, yeah. So everyone would have uploaded to GitHub or StackBlitz or CodePen or somewhere where they can share the link to everyone to, to take a look at. That's usually how, how we did it. Hmm. Cool. So, you, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Lindsay. I was just going to say, you you mentioned that you're using Zoom for the, the calls for that two-way interaction, which sounds awesome. I was wondering if you had considered using something like Discord instead. I've seen a lot of uh, either courses or just communities moving in that direction, and it also offers the two-way video style as well as after the after the call, you can continue communicating. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So we, I went back and forth on what community tools I wanted to use. And maybe this is too, a little inside baseball for people who are listening, but there's quite a few out there. Like how do, how do you interact with your community? And, and so as for like chatting, there is really between Slack, Facebook groups, and Discord. And I did a, a poll for everyone that signed up for the class and asked them what they would prefer. And it was like 50-50 between Discord and Slack, but Slack was just a little higher. So I did a Slack channel and that that was good. So people were interacting with Slack, posting, commenting, talking together. So I think that added a little bit more community. I know Discord has some video features too, I've heard. And actually I've been on video calls on Discord before. So that's an interesting thing, but no, we, we haven't tried that. Yeah, I've only used Discord for the chat feature. I, I wasn't aware that it had quite the video capabilities like like that. So that's that'd be interesting. One thing I'll say is that with the with the new course, so after I I, I was able to create the the two courses, this View 360, I ran it twice this year in 2020. I'm definitely gonna start again in 2021, but I wanted to do another course, just a real quick course, and we can get into this in a second. But I decided for that course to uh, offer community as well. And that one, I'm gonna, I am going to use Discord as everyone can join that who's bought the course and they can interact on there. And I've actually been meaning to set that up very soon. Yeah, I see that a few places. I know like uh, I'm in a room with like Syntax FM. They have a Discord room there with a bunch of different channels. And I know there's some other communities on Discord that I'm part of. So, so I think that's really the power of one of the really selling points of buying a course that's like a six week program or it's where it's kind of instructor led and it's not just a you know $20 course from from Udemy or Joe Blow but it's is that having a community and having people that will be 
like-minded with you, that will be accountable to you, that will kind of push you in the right direction is so important when you're learning technologies and you're trying to hone your craft. Like I wouldn't be anywhere without looking at at the amazing work other developers have done in the Vue community and see how they're doing things. And that's really what's great about having these programs like this. Yeah, I know that's, I think that's how the whole model, or at least a large part of the model for free code camp is that, you know, you got course, but they've got all kinds of online resources and code pairing and different resources to pair up and work with people and get advice. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's definitely going to be a big help for those who are trying to learn something new and feel like they're drinking from the proverbial fire hose, you know, and, and want to get past that. So, okay, so you mentioned your short little workshop that you did here, I think it was a month ago, if I remember right, somewhere around yep. there that you did. And did you already tell everything about that? Any detail? I was just curious to see how you did that. Was it the same sort of structure with a Zoom call and everybody's in there and and uh, maybe some pre-distributed materials to look at or, or how did that one work as compared to your longer course? Yeah, so I so I wanted to put out another course this year and... As everyone listening right now knows, Vue 3 came out in the last few months, and it's really a big sh- it, it's a big shift in mindset on on the way you do some things. Obviously, you don't have to use, for example, the composition APIs, but if you do, it's it does take a little bit of shift in thinking. And so, so I wanted to kind of share my thoughts on that and show some good patterns of how to use the composition API and then just talk about all the kind of really new cool things to, to do. And then also make it affordable too. I wanted to try for people who couldn't come into my live six-week class that they could also have something else they could check out. So I, I came up with this idea to do a three-hour workshop on on View 3 and it was modestly priced around a hundred bucks, I believe. And I sent it out to my list and I got a good class of people that wanted to do it that attended live. So it was, I've never done a a live workshop like that. I've definitely attended workshops at different in-person conferences. So I kind of had an idea of what it's like and, and what they did. And some, I've been to conferences and I I don't know, maybe Lindsay and, and you guys can tell me and Steve that some workshops have you it's just a lot of someone talking in front of the class explaining concepts and then you can or can't if you want to you can actually do work during the workshop and then there's others where it's like someone talks for 10 minutes and then they give you an assignment and you have to work for 30 minutes and they walk kind of walk around so i was trying to play around with like how what is the best way to do a virtual workshop to give the most value to the people that attend and so I came up with the idea instead of trying to, I, I felt like if I gave, if I taught for 20 minutes and then I gave them like 30 minutes to work on assignment, I don't think that would have been, and virtually I couldn't really help them as much. So I decided to create, take a curriculum where we had three hours. I would have these probably five, uh, five different chunks. And then we have five or 10 minute breaks in every hour, 45 minutes to an hour to give people time to like, take a break, kind of absorb what they have, ask questions. And that format went really well. So we just deep dived into like the composition API and view three model, V3 model stuff. And I'm trying to look at my curriculum here, just everything you needed to know with view three. And it was really fun. And I, and then when I got done, I was super tired. I felt drained, but I felt really good about that because we covered so much from like 
TypeScript, fragments, suspense, testing, teleports. Like we got a lot of really good topics in. We had some good questions. And and that was kind of the genesis of that. So how does that work with so you still you still use Zoom, correct? For the the workshop? Yes. So are you still able to have sort of one-on-one conversations at all with people during the workshop or is that you just save that for after the workshop in, in your other channels? Yeah. So I had both, like some people had questions before and after the workshop, I had a handful of a few questions during the workshop. So I really wanted to make it interactive that way. So people could, I also, all the examples, I had a lot of examples of all these different techniques. I, I, I put up a lot of them on stack blitz so everybody can kind of follow along while they were watching, listening, and try the examples out, see how fragments work, see how suspense works while we were doing the workshop. In fact, I kind of watched one of Sarah Drasner's workshops on front-end masters, and I kind of saw how she was doing it. So I kind of I tried to, tried to emulate her a little bit. You know, I'm not as good as her, but I was trying to emulate some of the things that she was doing and, and trying to keep it interactive during it. And so one thing I did to do after that is I have it up for sale. So after the workshop was done, I waited about a month. I did a little bit of cleanup on it. And then I've been selling it as like a kind of a one-off product. So if anybody's still interested and you're listening right now, the link will be in the show notes. Awesome. So real quick, let's, have you considered Twitch? I know that's a real popular one. That's more for, uh, I think that's more live streaming and not quite the interaction that you get with Zoom. Am I right? I did. I, I have tried a little bit of, of Twitch. I mostly, I do videos on YouTube. I think I've done like one or two live sessions on Twitch just to try it out. I'm still a little hesitant to go in full force because it just, I don't have enough time to add another platform and another thing I have to make content for. But yeah, it, it's a fun, I've definitely seen some people in the YouTube development space starting to move over to do live Twitch shows every week or you know two, two or three times a week. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And I think you could, that could be a way to reach more people, but it's something I haven't done much of. Well, I was thinking more for your course, your workshop as compared to just like a regular thing, but, but uh, yeah. That's yeah, it's, interesting. Yeah. Maybe if it was like, if I had like a free course, I definitely could see doing like a YouTube live or a Twitch live or something like that. I think those could be, that could work. Right. That, I think that that's lot, like, we've seen so many virtual conferences come out lately. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of them are just one step above Twitch or YouTube live. Right. So one of the tools you've mentioned that you've used is Stackblitz. And so I haven't really played with it too much. To me, it looks like a um, code sandbox or code pan type of tool. Is, is that right? Yes. Yes. So does it, is that, uh, how do you, how do you compare it? Is it, is it have more features than some of those other ones? It's just your tool of choice for this particular case or. Yeah. So I was your lo- experience with it. That's a good question. So I was looking for a code editor online that had Vue 3 support, like literally the day oh, after right. Vue 3 came out. Mm-hmm. And none of the other big sand, code sandbox or those other ones had Vue 3 support out at the time. And this one did. So uh, it, instantly I gravitated towards it. And I've also had the privilege of meeting, like I'm going to name drop. I actually met the I actually met the owner of, of StackBlitz and he was such a nice guy. So... I was actually at a conference and we all had dinner together uh, f- 
last year. He was at a NG Conf. Actually, went to an Angular conference. Don't hate me, view people, but I went to an NG. Uh, That's okay. Angular. We'll edit that part out of the, uh, <laughs> of the podcast. We forgive I, you, Eric. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking. I just spun up a view template. That looks pretty cool. You got your whole structure there with your source and components and an app view and and stuff. So yeah, that, that looks nice. Yeah, I just kind of I like. It. I think. I mean, popularity wise, I think people more. I think maybe Code Sandbox is probably more popular, or what's the other one? There's a handle well, there's Code Pen. Code Pen, yeah. But I, I really like Stacklets. I think it's a well-made product, and I like the people behind it. Cool, cool. Is, are there any features compared to Code Sandbox that you feel are either missing or superior with Stacklets, or is it just that it I don't, had Vue three on day one? Yeah, I think I think that was the biggest thing is Vue three on on day one. I you know I. I think it's it has pretty um I haven't looked at all the different features, but I think it's parity with with a lot of those other sandbox tools on features parity. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It looks pretty similar. It looks pretty similar for sure. So let's step back a little bit and talk about self-publishing versus traditional public. So obviously you've been down the traditional publishing route with the U2 in action. So what have you done from a self-step published standpoint? Are we talking just these courses that we've been discussing or have you any, done any other types of books or any other material? Yeah, this was, uh, so I published a couple of books and my second book, the Vue.js in Action, is was published by Manning. And it's interesting talking about like traditional publishing versus like self-publishing. I, I feel like everyone has a different opinion on this. And for us developers, I really like the road for traditional publishing for the fact that it it kind of gives you a lot of guardrails to help you kind of publish something that you'll be proud of. So they have, like, for example, when I worked with Manning, they gave me a publisher, or they gave me an editor, like a technical editor that actually read over everything and, and told me if I had any problems. They gave me a book editor that, that looked for grammatical mistakes. They kept me on a deadline and had deliverables at different milestones that I had to deliver. And so as someone that at the time didn't have, I mean, I've grown my audience. I'm not saying it's huge right now, but I didn't have much of an audience back then. It also had a really great distribution strategy where I knew that if having a big publisher behind me, that that I was pretty much guaranteed a certain amount of money because you get an upfront advance. So you don't have to worry if you're bomb, if you're, book bombs you still get paid but it also just had had some upside too so if your book did really well you would get a certain percentage of every book sold after you pay back your advance so i think all those really resonated me at the time i think you see now a lot of i'm just watching twitter the other day and there's so many people self-publishing books and they kind of get lost in the mix and unless you have a, a huge name on twitter you probably are not going to get so many books or if you don't have an audience so I, I feel like traditional publishing is probably the best bet for most people that most developers who don't already have an audience who just want to kind of get their name out there and it's also i mean we can go on and on about some of the benefits but that, that's kind of my thought process yeah i actually did it i was technical editor for a book this is eight or nine years ago when drupal 7 was first coming out and that'll tell you how long it's been um and a buddy of mine wrote a book on Drupal 7 and I tech edited it for him. So if you Google me on Amazon, you'll find my author profile, I think somewhere buried in there. Nice. But yeah, so I've tech edited for those books. So yeah, they definitely have have 
those resources for you to make sure for sure. So from a payment standpoint, you said was it they give you an advance and then you get agreed amount amount and then so when the book sells, you get a percentage of everything and above and beyond that advance amount. Is that how that works? Yes. Yes. So that that's that's essentially how it works. So you for those of you who are interested in book publishing, I think it's a, a good route. But you you normally work with an acquisition editor and then there's some negotiations that go on before you sign the the paperwork and the contracts and part of it is negotiating your your rates how much you're going to get off of every book sold and so that could be anywhere like new book publisher new new people can get a really low rate if you have written a few books you might get a higher uh, rate so that just depends on that uh, so, how, how well known you are and have you written books before Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So did you go to them or did they come to you in terms of connecting with Manning for writing this book? They came to me. So I I was lucky that I had written a book with Pack Publishing before and they had actually saw saw some of my work I've done. I had written a blog for a couple of years. I've written I wrote a ton of stuff on Ember JS at that time. And then I started doing more and more Vue.js later on. And I was doing more YouTube videos. And then they uh, an acquisition editor talked to me and we went through the contract and then we figured out royalties and everything. And that's, that's how that happened with me. Now, it's not to say if, if you're listening right now and you want to get into traditional book publishing, that you should, that you have to find a, uh, that you have to wait for someone to contact you first, is I guess what I'm trying to say. You should be proactive because there are many book publishers that are looking for authors to contact them with book ideas so they actually, when I was contacted by Manning, they had a an author for the Vue.js in Action book that had started the book, but then because of some family reasons had left. And they were looking for someone to take over the project. And they had saw the work I had done in the Vue community and, and my, and my uh, YouTube channel. So I was actually, I kind of had a little bit of an advantage when I started off with because some of the book was a couple of the chapters were already written. I mean, throughout the process of writing the book, though, those we had, I had rewritten those chapters. We deleted a bunch of things, but th- that that's how that book came to to be. Mm, okay. So now, well, obviously, they, that the you know the most people that the reason that most tech people write a book is because it makes them instantaneously wealthy. Am I am I correct in that? <laughs> no, yes, I'm a millionaire, <laughs> and now I'm on my yacht in the Caribbean. Now, and unfortunately, the one of the bad one of the benefits is not making a lot of money. It, it is it does could lead to making a lot of money, especially if you're doing contract work or you're looking for a new job because it does give you that you're going to always have that name author by your profile. Like you're you're going to have an author is going to be part of your identity online and for then on and forever. And being a published author is is a pretty cool title to have. Uh, so, but the royalty rates won't make you rich. You know, you're, I'll be frank. I can't tell you how much I made because of contracts and everything, but you can And you'd just, have to kill us, right? Yes, uh, would have to kill us and everybody listening, but- Our poor you know, audience. <laughs> you know, think think thousands, not like tens of thousands. Right, right. So, I mean, that, so, that's, that, that, that happens. 
One thing I really like about Manning in particular is their early access program. One book I purchased for them was Elm in Action by Richard Feldman. And I got to participate a little bit with the early access there. People were able to find typos and basically open source the book in a way. Did you get to work with that while you were working on View in Action? Yeah, yeah. That was a really great part of working on the book was working with the community. So they have this early access program, like Lindsay just said, that as soon as you get like three or four chapters in, it's open up. It's basically anybody can buy it at that point. And they use those sales figures too to figure out like how what the interest in the book is. Obviously, if you if they add this early access on and no one's interested, I mean that might be an issue. But generally, uh, yeah, it goes into early access after only like three or four chapters. And then the community can start looking at it and commenting. And it's on like this public forum. So I would, I probably once every week or two, I would just gather all the feedback up from, from the early access, from the, the people that had written on the forums, and then try to use that to make the book better. And sometimes you get very, you get really super intelligent people on there like way better than me. And they were like, by the way, I, I remember I wrote a history section at the beginning of the Vue.js in action book about model view controller. And someone had nitpicked me and said, well, technically the history was this from this day. And like, it was amazing feedback. <laughs> so, so I had to take that feedback and I like incorporated it into my history lesson at the beginning of the book. So that part was really, really, really nice. As the book progressed, I would look through the feedback and some of it's not always relevant. Like sometimes you get some nitpicky feedback on things they didn't like and, and it's not really worth going through and fixing. Uh, but that was that was a part of the whole writing process and which was awesome that you can get that. And actually, I, I personally thanked, I, I believe it's been, uh, the book's been out for a couple of years now, but I personally thanked one of the auth, one of the, uh, people that wrote in the forum so much that really helped me out. And I'll, I'll say to expand upon that question, Lindsay, Manning, and I can't speak for all other publishers, but Manning does such an amazing job of trying to create a high quality book, maybe to the point where it could probably drive some authors crazy in a good way, but you are constantly look, the quality of your book is being re peer reviewed by other people like Steve. He mentioned he peer reviewed another book. You have panels of people that after you have certain milestones, after you write the first four chapters, there's like four or five people, maybe I think it's up to 10 people that are in the industry that will read those four chapters and then give you pages and pages of feedback. They have pretty extensive technical editors that will double check what you're saying. So the, the bar and quality, the high quality bar is pretty high for Manning um, all the way to the end. And that's something I really enjoyed because I knew that what I was putting out there was peer reviewed by many people and that it was solid. Not to say though, if you look at my form, I think I, I had like one or two bugs that somehow very tiny little, uh, not bugs, but, but I think maybe one or two, two uh, typos and things like that did enter the book when it finally got published. But other than that, it, it was really high quality. So did you, if I remember correctly, after the book is out, there's still a site for the book and people can post up in the forums. Did you find, get a lot of interaction once the book was published? I did get some interaction. I think one, like the, the two or three bugs in the book, like there's like one section where I forgot to add a div tag or something that, that got some, some mention on the forums. And then that's, if I remember correctly, after the book's over, that's pretty much done. You don't get too much interaction afterwards and unfortunately this is probably 
a problem with all books is that there's no revision process. Like Manning doesn't create version 1.1 of your book or 1.2 of your book. Once it's published and it's in print, they don't re they don't fix it for anything else. And everything that's wrong with it will go into like an addendum or later on it will be it'll be listed somewhere else. But that that that's how it happened. And and but I did get a lot of positive feedback. I got like a bunch of five star reviews on a few different sites. I had definitely a lot of people congratulating me who have bought the book. I still get emails every now and then. In fact, even though View 3 is out and this book is focused mostly on View 2 features, I'd still say if you're looking for a good book on Vue.js that it's still relevant. It still has like 99% of the, 95% of the stuff in there still works on View 3 and, and works fine. You're just not going to get the, like, the latest View 3 things in there. Right. So once the book was out, was there any rumblings, uh, rumblings about Pulitzer nominations? Or uh, I mean, a few, a few. Some people were coming out, and and uh, I said, no, no, I'm I'm too humble. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I am so humble. Okay. <laughs> so the last point we we're going to talk about, you mentioned something about grinding away for fun, and I know that you know we'll put in a shameless plug about your YouTube channel, programming with Eric or program with Eric. I forget which one it is. Yeah, program with um, Eric program with Eric. I know you do like weekly, weekly videos errors. Uh, is that what you mean by grinding away for fun or what, what's, what's that thought about? Oh, did I say grinding away for fun? Yeah. I've been grinding away, just creating YouTube videos every week. I just finished up the course that I had mentioned earlier. So I'm dealing with support for that, answering people's questions, updating my marketing site, so that that that's kind of a passion of mine is just helping people and and creating great content online. And then I know I was looking, I was an avid listener of your your podcast with Dylan Israel, self-taught or not. Do uh, you guys have plans to be picking that up again soon? Yeah, yeah. So th- for those who don't know, self-taught or not was a fun podcast that I have with my my buddy Dylan Israel. He's also another YouTuber that has really blossomed he's he's done so well he's 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 uh he went from being a pizza delivery man boy to now he's a senior developer at a pretty prestigious company working on an angular project i believe he's an angular world and uh, yeah he's doing great so we we created this podcast just for people because i my background is more of traditionally taught computer science degree I started down that road. Well, I know a lot of people probably listening here, and I know I don't know about you, Lindsay or Steve, but probably also you guys maybe have self-taught yourself in, in some ways or another. So he was definitely completely self-taught. I'm more of the traditionally mind computer science. So we thought it'd be fun to do a podcast together. And we've done two seasons. We ended our second season in October, and we are going to continue on with the third season, but Dylan has been super busy, so we're thinking probably early next year for our third season. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I'm definitely the uh, Dylan's route, uh, <laughs> self-taught. You know, late nights reading and playing with stuff, and eventually getting jobs and learning on the job and so on. So, I think we had a whole episode on like, what does that mean? Like, what does self-taught mean? What is like, or not part? And we kind of came to the conclusion at the end that like, if as a software developer, it doesn't matter if you got a if you went to college or not, we all are sort of self-taught in some ways. Like there's no way like college or a boot camp will teach you everything you need to know. You you'll have to 
you'll have to like teach yourself yourself a lot. And so maybe even better than self-taught, we are like using the word self-directed, like maybe self-directed is a better term to describe what many software developers do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, I was going to say, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, I, I kind of fit into both categories and that I, I am self-taught. I started learning HTML and CSS back in middle school, high school time and, and built a built a community site that I was able to run for a while. But then I also went to school and I, I now have degree in software development. So I'm technically both, I guess. But yeah, I like that idea of self-directed. and I, I chose where I was going to learn and what I was going to learn. And that even applied inside of the degree. So I, I really like that characterization. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be true for any any field. You know, I, I can think of one particular field that's really has nothing to do with computer programming because I'm a firefighter and EMT for a local fire district here in Oregon. And I've had paramedics tell me, you know, they have to go through a year, year and a half of school and internship and clinicals and all that kind of stuff. But at the end, you know, their teachers will tell them, okay, you've got all this. You don't know Jack. <laughs> you've got a lot to learn still by getting out in the field and working on, you know, real cases, real calls, stuff that, you know, we never would have dreamed of here in the classroom. And, and that's true for any education, really. It's, you know, it's designed to give you the tools to learn, you know, the tools to get started and going. And then from there, you use those tools to learn. So, so I like, you know, back to my point, I just think that's, that's true for anything, not just necessarily software development. Yeah. We've joked around too about, about that. It's funny, like if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you pretty much have to go to school. Like there's no such thing as self-taught doctors and, or at least if there is, I I don't want to be a part of that (laughs) and self-taught lawyers. (laughs) Well, have so, you ever seen the TV show Suits where the guy's sort of self-taught and he learns on the job? No, Meghan Markle's old show, old show, you know? I, I think maybe back in like Lincoln, I think was self-taught lawyer. I, I oh, mean, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There's like a cursing, I guess a, a blessing and a curse with that is that we're in, as an industry, since so many people don't need any sort of certification or degree to become, to get into this, that now we have a glut maybe you guys disagree, but there's so many people trying to get jobs as software developers. It's really hard for employers to figure out who's good and who's not. And then we get things like take-home tests that take out, that take six days to complete, or we have quizzes where you have to know esoteric JavaScript knowledge to pass them, or you have, you have to know algorithms and data structures, which, you know, nobody teaches unless you went to college or you have to learn yourself. So it becomes we get like many more people coming in the industry. There's no gold certification that tells someone that they can actually do the job or not. And so now it's, it's kind of a mess. And there's every day I see on Twitter, either someone complaining about how algorithm interviews are waste or are not fair. And and they, they're not, they're wasteful. And why are you asking me an algorithm question when I can run your whole, your whole site for you without any problem? And then, then, then in the same day, I see someone commenting about how they spent six hours on a take-home test. You know, why aren't they getting paid for it, and how is this going to help? And then in the same, and then in the same thread, I see someone complaining about they don't like to be asked JavaScript questions because they know what to do. So it feels like th- there's still some problems with with it. But moving forward, yeah, I can I, write a whole blo- blog post or book about my uh, interviewing experience over the past six months and the things I've seen that still make me cringe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, from, I a, from, from an employer's, also, from an employer standpoint, right. yeah, you're right, Eric, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta figure out what you got, you know, once I bring somebody on, are they going to be able to do the job? 
I know there was one particular uh, job I interviewed for a few months ago, and they got really heavy into the details about the different types of object-oriented programming, you know, classic versus object-oriented, you know, so on. And I'm going through, and I obviously didn't answer them well enough, but at the same time, I told them, you know, all this stuff has never been, and has never inhibited me from getting the job done, you know, in a JavaScript environment. And so, you know, that's my viewpoint. They've got another viewpoint. They think it's important, obviously. And so it's, uh, it's a tough line, to, tough line to straddle for sure. Yeah, I, I have my own perspective on the certification part, just because I was, as, as part of my, my bachelor's degree, I was required to take the Oracle, I can't remember which test it was now, but it was, it was a Oracle SQL server test that was using very esoteric language for how, how to do particular things in SQL. And I, as I was doing research on it, it was like, yeah, even professional DBAs who have done this for years are failing this, but clearly it's not <laughs> stopping them from doing their job. So I definitely see where employers would like some sort of certification to filter people, but at the same time, we need to have certifications that are reasonable too, if, if industry wants to move that way. I definitely yeah, agree that that having having code tests where they test you on things that never matter on the job is definitely not the right direction. But what can they do is where it ends up, right? Well, yeah. Then the problem also comes with keeping whoever's maintaining the certifications has to keep updating them, you know, with yep. with the newest stuff. And so, it, definitely a lot of work. I know in the past I've done MCSE, you know, Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, back in the days of Windows, the end of Windows NT and the beginning of Windows 2000. So that Tells you a bit how long ago it's been. I know in the Drupal world, there's a company called Acquia, which was founded by Drupal's creator, uh, Dries Boitart. And they started coming out with their own sort of Acquia cert Drupal certifications. Um, and I never took them and it never was a hindrance with me to being able to work. But I did see, start to see job announcements where they didn't require, but it, it would help to do certifications. So some people will try to do them and just... And maybe they work, maybe they don't, I don't know. But that's, yeah, we're down to a big rabbit hole here about certifications. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a big topic. It's an interesting topic. I, I will say to put a bow on that, yeah, I think certifications to you guys at this point is, is a rabbit hole. I, I don't know, like, I think employers don't really see much, unless you're like a specific DevOps job where they're looking at specific certificate that's important. I, I will say changing topics just for a second. I mean, I'd love to hear what you guys think about pair programming because I've heard pair programming people act like pair programming at, at for an interview is some sort of panacea that just solves all the problems but I always feel like uh. you're always going to have the same issues with pair programming like now you have the subjective viewpoint of one person can like working with another person and that person may not have the same experience as another person on the team that pair programs with someone and we don't even know if the code is exactly the same or maybe this this guy has harder code or this has like i fear like you're going to still have lots of issues with pair programming just as much as you have with with doing take-home tests or asking the the javascript trivia questions that some companies do i would speaking for myself i don't like the pair programming. One, it's just, it's a lot of pressure. You know, somebody's watching you and, and they'll tell you, oh, we, we don't really care about, you know, your end result. We care more about your, how you think, you know, how you solve a problem, how do you attack a, a known problem? And that's good to a certain extent, but that still doesn't really, <laughs> the, 
the pressure you feel when somebody's looking over your shoulder versus being able to, you know, sit on your own and work through a problem and, you know, and look for answers and, and that kind of stuff. I had one, the first one I did a few months ago was a pretty short and sweet problem. And I can't, if code, not code pad, I think it was code pad is what it called, where you could share a screen and he could see what I'm doing and edit it uh, right there live, which is a, is a pretty cool little tool. The problem was because of the way it's built, I didn't have access to my debugger. And that's how I solve everything, <laughs> you know, using the, the dev tools in the browser or, or something in my IDE. And so I had no debugger. I couldn't, I had no vision inside what was going on. My code couldn't see. So it was just a matter of trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And I got it just about done right at the end of the, of the time. But that was a frustration for me and that I didn't have my tools that I would have while working as a developer if I was to, to be working for them. So, you know, that's just my, my preference is that the pair programming in a pressure place like that, where you feel like somebody's looking over you, to me, that's, that's, that doesn't help you think very clearly when you're trying to solve a problem. That almost yeah, sounds I, like a software test. Okay, go ahead, Lindsay. I, I was going to say, I, did, I haven't had as much experience as Steve recently with interviews or any of that. I did recently do three technical interviews that involved pair programming. And it was, it was all right. The, the people that were looking over my shoulder were, you know, they were trying to be helpful. They wanted, like Steve was saying, they were trying to see how I react and how I go into solving a problem. And in my case, I was lucky enough. I, I was just using my personal computer. I had my environment set up. I could use for, for the UI portion. I was able to just use Vue CLI and start something up. The tricky part was they were looking for specific things. So like I was doing, I was just trying to solve the problem as they gave it to me. And then I found out later I was dinged points because I didn't submit Git repository in a zip file. <laughs> or I wasn't talking enough out loud to think to to vocalize how I was thinking. Just things like that. They so in one way they made it feel really comfortable, like I would actually be working on the job with them if I had gotten that position. But on the other, it's like now do these slightly awkward things that you wouldn't do because if I was really working on a project, I'd be pushing to GitHub or whatever version control they were using instead of sending a zip file with my Git repository inside of it. Or I wouldn't be talking out loud explaining why I'm using Tailwind or why I'm using Vue CLI or what, you know, I would just say, this is what I'm going to do. And if there was, if the person had a question, they'd ask, well, why are you doing that? And have an actual discussion. But in general, I, I think it is nicer than just a, like a take-home test because you're able to get more immediate feedback if you're doing something that isn't exactly what they're looking for. And also there was just that nice bit of here's step one, here's step two. You know, it was, it was an incremental thing for each of the technical interviews I did. So it was like, do this, build this now expand it a little bit. Now, how would you adjust for this? Things like that, rather than a take-home test, which is just build a thing. You have two hours go. I had somewhere it was like, oh yeah, we expect this to take like three days. I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to be job hunting. I've got a project I'm working on to pay the bills in the meantime. And I'm supposed to take about three days worth of time out to do this. Yeah. Do this. And in my case, it was right before I was going on vacation for a week. So I didn't have as much time to put into it as I would have liked. And, and it was like, how do you want to take all that time? And then just to come back, ah, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, it was just, that's frustrating. Yeah, for sure. The take-home test I had, as soon as I clicked the, the button to see the prompt, a timer started. So I had to do it oh, in the, in that two hours. After, as soon as I learned, I would. They wanted to like, I know. I'm assuming they wanted to test how quickly I could process the requirement and build something, not just 
okay, here's the requirement. Now I'm going to go off and do it. And you can't watch how long it's actually taking me or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. I think we beat that one to death pretty good. Eric, do you have anything else you wanted to cover while we got you here? No, this is this has been fun. We've covered a lot. Thanks for letting me come on today. So any thoughts on like a view three book for Manning or you got enough going on that you don't need that too? Another book? No, right now I'm I am not going to take any books. Maybe early next year I'll reevaluate where I'm at. So you never know. It could be a view three updated book at some point, but I think right now I'm just gonna stick with YouTube and, and right doing my own courses, but you never know. Cool. Yeah, you've got I'm looking at your uh your video list getting bigger all the time. Yeah. I think you, did, what, you had a View 3 Composition API tutorial in 15 minutes. And oh, yeah, I watched that one. Good. All righty. <laughs> cool. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So let us move on to picks. Let's start with Lindsay. Put you on the spot first. Sounds good. I have two picks today. They are both books. First is also actually a Manning book. It is the Jamstack book by Raymond Camden, who is one of our other co-hosts, and Brian Rinaldi. Uh, it is currently in the early access program. Four chapters are available. The tagline is learn why Jamstack is important and then learn to implement a static site in literally 20 minutes. And they go into how and why to build Jamstack applications. So I just wanted to plug that for Raymond. It looks really good. I am excited to see how that one goes. The other is it's actually a series of children's books. If you have been listening for a while, you know I pick children's books occasionally. This series is called The Octonauts. The Octonauts are a group of eight, I'm, I'm reading off their website, a crew of eight adorable animals who explore the ocean in search of adventure and fun. Um, so there's a number of books that go over different topics. And then there is also a TV show that came out. There's four seasons of it available on Netflix where they explore different aspects of the ocean and aquatic life. Um, and, you know, it's a children's show. So they, they incorporate some not quite realistic things, such as, you know, talking animals or whatever. But they do teach a lot about how different animals underwater live, like how sharks need, or at least a particular kind of shark needs to be moving forward in order to breathe. Or how uh, symbiosis works, or about the Mariana Trench, they recently put out a new 40-minute special about the Great Barrier Reef, and it's all musical and stuff. It's My daughter absolutely loves it, and she's learning at the same time, so highly recommend it. Another friend of mine mentioned, this is one of those children's shows where you can watch it and none of the characters get annoying, so 
I, I definitely recommend it so that as a parent, you don't have to deal with some of the more frustrating shows to a parent if you're needing something like that. So those are my two picks. Sweet. So I'm going to go next and I'm going to go down a route that I don't usually do, which is musicals. So a while ago, I got the DVD for The Greatest Showman and hadn't been watching it. I kept saying, I'm going to sit down and watch it, sit down and watch it. So I finally sat down and watched it this weekend with with my nine-year-old son. We loved it. The music is awesome. I've always, you know, I've heard songs here and there, but didn't really realize how how good the music was. And it's interesting, you know, on the DVD, they have the extras and they go, they have a section where they go through all the songs and the two songwriters and how they created them and their starting points and so on. And then there's the one song, uh, Rewrite the Stars, that has Zac Efron and Zendaya doing a trapeze act while they're singing. It's just phenomenal. I just love watching that scene. And then my son, my other son, who's 17, had been talking a lot about La La Land. He and his girlfriend had watched it and he really liked it. And as a side note, my son is one of those crazy musically gifted freaks who can sit down and look at videos of how the keys move and figure play a whole song. And so he had been learning a number of the of the songs from the La La Land soundtrack. The primary one is Mia and Sebastian's theme. And he's got it down just about where he's really good. And so I was like, okay, I got to watch it. So right after that same night, I finished The Greatest Showman. And he and I sat down and watched La La Land. And it, it was pretty good. I preferred The Greatest Showman over that one just from a movie and music standpoint. But but uh, it had it was, it was entertaining or fun to watch. And I'm normally not a musical person. You know, I can remember my parents taking me to Sound of Music in the theater when I was really young. And, you know, never been much of a, like an Ethel Merman fan or anything like that. But But for musicals these were both both really good and really fun to watch so eric you are up all right i have not watched la la land but i heard it's pretty good but my kids do like octonauts well i'll give a plus one for that i have uh, my pick today is i may have i don't know if i picked this last time but it doesn't have to be crazy at work by jason fried and david heinemeyer hansen so it's just a kind of a a way that companies work and how it doesn't have to be that way so he has a very it's it's he has a very specific way jason freed and david heinemann heinemeyer hansen have a specific way they run base camp where they that's where i know the name okay yeah they they run it a certain way and it just kind of as someone that's in the software development industry it's really interesting to to figure out like how they hire how they fire people how they deal with overtime um, like they really don't like meetings like many of us, but how they deal with seniority and how they they have very few, they have very little turnover and they pay a lot of money is part of the thing they say in the book. So really, really interesting book. I'd highly recommend it. And also just give a shout out that my, my friend Nader Dabit created a book called Full Stack Serverless and it was released in just a few months ago. It's an excellent book. It's about modern application development with React, AWS and GraphQL. That's it for me. Right on. Second, the um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. I absolutely love that. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, third base camp. Yeah, they have. I've heard uh, their founder. I think it's. Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. He's talking about like their six week development cycle and how they do things. They do things a little differently there than I've heard uh, from other people in terms of their development cycle and and sprint sizes and that kind of stuff. But yeah, he's definitely an interesting guy to listen to. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people are screaming his name at me as they listen and like Jason Freed. No, can't think of who it is. Anyway, we'll put it in the show notes. Maybe <laughs> anybody cares. 
All right. Uh, any more shameless plugs, Eric? We've got your program with Eric, YouTube channel, Self-Taught or Not, your books. Any movies coming up? Nope, no movies. No feature <laughs> films or anything? Okay, good, good. All right. Well, I think we covered everything, so we will call it an episode. Thanks, everybody. and We'll see you next time on Views on View. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.